Hello and welcome to episode two of the Help Side Basketball Coaching Podcast, where we're going to focus on strategy and analytics um, when it comes to coaching. Um, very excited! We finally got the new name um, done, the Help Side. I thought it was a cool um, name that we came up with, and the website will be launching very soon. Uh, for those of you who are expecting an episode a little quicker, I apologize for the delay. Uh, we were working on the name and we wanted to get the name down and get the website started before we committed to anything and started making another podcast with the wrong name. So we got it. We're the help side and, uh, very excited to have that all worked out. Um, so this is the second episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the first one. And today we're going to preview the NBA playoffs, go through all the matchups, and then in our analytics section, we're going to talk about the four factors of kind of breaking down box scores and coaching and kind of a basic analytic like we did last time. And for the strategy session, we are going to talk about kind of the chess match of post play. And uh, so that's what we're going to be working with today. And why don't we get right into it? So obviously, the NBA regular season ended uh, two days ago. Today, we're recording on Friday. Uh, the NBA playoffs start tomorrow morning, and uh, it was quite an exciting end in the Western Conference, and even in the Eastern Conference, where a bunch of spots came down to the final day. So let's start with the East, which is the least, the less exciting uh, side of the bracket, and we'll start with the top. Uh, we have Toronto versus Washington. I cannot believe that Washington is all the way down at the eighth seed. I know they lost a game to Orlando uh, maybe on the last day or second to last day that could have gotten them to the two seed, or to the seventh seed to play Boston, which would have been a much easier matchup. Um, if you want to talk about underperforming teams, I know John Wall was hurt, but if we remember, as soon as John Wall got hurt, they won their first four or five games and the ball was moving, and guys were talking about how, how great it was to have so much ball movement and not have one person dominating the ball. And then I don't know what happened, uh, but them down at the eight seed is really a bad look. It's a really bad look for their coach and a really bad look for the team. I mean, that team is loaded with talent. And maybe at some point we're going to just have to say that maybe they're not loaded with talent. Maybe they're just a good team and... That's the best we're going to get, and it's Scotty Brooks, by the way. With Toronto, I mean, it's, I mean, look, we all know it's going to come down to LeBron and what LeBron can do, uh, and I'm sure Toronto is not happy to see Cleveland in their second-round series. They would probably have rather preferred them to be in the, in the Eastern Conference Finals and had to go through some more work to get to Toronto, but we can get to that later. Uh you would think that Toronto should be able to win this series. Um, Toronto's just been getting better every year. They're solid defensively. They can score the ball. They have a lot of quote-unquote stars, maybe second-tier stars, uh, with with uh, Lowry and DeRozan and Ibaka uh, and even the big guy. So 
they've got a good team. I think they should be able to handle Washington, especially the fact that Washington is an eight seed. I mean, you're an eight seed for a reason. It's not like we played 16 games like the NFL, and if you have a couple bad bad games, you know it's going to significantly change the outcome of your season. This is 82 games, and Washington was the eight seed in the East. So uh, I think that Toronto should handle them, and I could see it going. I think it, see it could be done in five. That'd be my prediction. Uh, going to the two seed, you have Boston against Milwaukee, and people are already starting to pick Milwaukee as a trendy upset pick. It's going to be tough for me to go against Boston here, and I know they're missing everybody, but Brad Stevens is such a good coach. I mean, he maximizes the potential of every player on his team, and that's why, in my opinion, he's the first or second best coach in the NBA. He gets more out of these guys and gets more out of nothing than anyone else. I mean, if you remember these teams that he's had the past couple of years, I think it was two years ago, where he just had nobody. And yes, they got destroyed by Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals, or maybe it was even in the second round. But he had nobody, and they fought, and they battled, and he just maximizes everything from these guys. And I'm so impressed with them every year. And here he is with what could have been his best player, maybe Gordon Hayward, out for the whole year. Kyrie now gone. And here they are sitting at the second seed. And... Joe Regular, who turns on the NBA game, is not going to recognize anyone on the Celtics. And I still like the Celtics to win this series just because of Brad Stevens and how he maximizes talent and how he gets them to play so hard all the time that I like them. And I know they got, I know that Milwaukee has Giannis and I know that they have so much length. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see that manifest itself because Milwaukee is one of the longest teams in the league and. Boston is one of the shorter teams in the league. You know, all of their guys are are small. I know Tatum's long, but but in general, they have shorter guys probably across the board. And it'll be interesting to see them and how that length of Milwaukee affects them, especially over the course of whatever, five, six, seven games, because that length really, really takes up space. I actually went to a Milwaukee uh, game this year against the Lakers a couple weeks ago. And seeing Giannis in person for the first time, his, shoulder, his shoulders are so broad. When he jumps up to offensive rebound, he's just so far above the rim that he just kind of puts his hands up there and tries to like bat it into the basket um, when the ball comes off the rim. It's very, it's really impressive. And then with Bledsoe, they have some speed and some and some you know scoring. So it's going to be a tough tough series. But I kind of like I kind of like uh, Boston to edge that one out. In the 3-6 matchup, we have a really interesting matchup with Philadelphia and with Miami. And this is interesting because you have a team with no playoff experience, with the exception of J.J. Redick and maybe a couple other guys, but I think it might just be Redick, versus Miami, who has some guys with playoff experience, and of course Dwayne Wade, who's won rings, three rings, so you have experience but less talent versus way more talent and no experience. Again, it's hard for me to pick against the home team here. I just think they're just too talented. The problem is that they don't know how to close because they're so young. And as we saw, they've blown multiple 20-point leads this year. And 
you are never out of a game when you're playing Philly. And Philly will get off to a hot start, get really excited, and maybe they run out of gas a little bit. You know, maybe they use so much energy getting the crowd fired up and, you know, having these great first quarters and first halves that by the second half they're just tired. And these veteran teams that kind of just say, okay, go ahead, go ahead, get excited, and then we'll just work our way back in the game. And, again, I probably have to pick Philadelphia, but I think this series is going to be close. I think that Miami will win one of the first two games here in Philly. Here in Philly, like I said, like I live in Philly. Um, and I think we'll have a real series. And I just, I think it could be a situation where both teams win one on the other's floor. And so we come back to Philly 2-2. And then I just think Philly maybe wins in six or seven. So that's why I like there. And then we get to the 4-5 matchup and we get to my guy LeBron and we get to Indiana. And I'll be honest, I haven't seen Indiana play a lot this year. They aren't a team of stars, um, so they weren't on national television a lot. So I didn't get to see them play a lot. I know Oladipo is their star, and, and he plays hard, and the whole team plays hard. And, you know, a five seed for them has got to be just – they have to be ecstatic with that, except the fact that they got stuck playing LeBron in the first round. And not only are you playing LeBron, you're playing – the powers that be not wanting LeBron to be out of the playoffs. So if things don't go well, it'll be really interesting to see. I just can't imagine a scenario where LeBron goes out in the first round. I just can't. So what does that mean? What are we going to see from Cleveland is the real question because they refuse to defend. And it's really funny. I haven't been to a NBA game in several years and I went to two this year. One was I wanted to see LeBron live um, before he gets too old. I really want to see Durant live before he gets too old, but there's more time for that. And I wanted to see, I mean, I got free tickets to the Lakers to play against Milwaukee. So I got went to two NBA games. And I watched Cleveland play against the Clippers. And at no point in that game were Cleveland, did Cleveland ever have a chance to win. At no point. They were so bad defensively, they did not care. And you see it on TV, but you don't, you can't see everything on TV. You can't see how they run back on defense. You know, because on the TV screen, everyone's the same size. Everyone runs around the same speed. You know, you the things you can see in real life are night and day to what you see on TV. And they just had just this attitude that they just didn't care on defense. And they just ran back with no purpose. They just, I mean, Kyle Korver was like Moses parting the sea every time they came at him. I mean, he couldn't stay in front of anybody. J.R. Smith was atrocious. And maybe, you know, I, obviously I watch a lot of basketball. J.R. Smith is known for, but he's gotten better at defense. And Kyle Korver is known for not being a defender. The problem is this is what they got. And when you look at Cleveland and when you look at teams that win championships, there's always a big two, a big three, sometimes a big three plus one. But there's always at least a big three. And Cleveland doesn't have that. I mean, and I don't even know if you would count Kevin Love as a two. I think Kevin Love is best in his role as the three, like when they won the championship, when Kyrie was the two. I don't think Kevin Love is quite good enough to be the Robin to Batman. And then the third, I don't even know who it is. I mean, so far it seems like it's been Jordan Clarkson, but Jordan Clarkson 
as a as a California guy and a Laker guy, there is no chance Jordan Clarkson's a number three. Jordan Clarkson goes out on the court with one thing in his mind, and that's shooting the ball as many times as he can, as quickly as he can, before he gets taken out. And I don't think Jordan Clarkson has ever wanted to win as badly as he wanted to, wants to score. Because everybody likes to win. That's great. But would you sacrifice your own personal success and possible future contracts in order for your team to win? And Jordan Clarkson doesn't do that. And maybe LeBron can have an effect on him. Hopefully LeBron can have an effect on him, but he doesn't do that. And look, they have a lot of nice pieces. You know, Calderon's been playing well. Uh, Tristan Thompson I love because he plays so hard, although he seems to be getting less effective every year. I like Nance. He's so athletic. He plays hard. He's willing to do dirty work, set screens, play defense, and he doesn't demand the ball, which is great. He just is there to kind of play, to play like Tristan Thompson. Uh, except that he can shoot it from 16, 17 feet, and he's probably more athletic than Tristan Thompson, uh, especially as far as jumping. But again, we're just talking about role players. And then, of course, there's Corver, who only has value if he's hitting shots. Now, when I say only has value if he's hitting shots, if he, he does have value as a floor spreader. That is true as well. But I'm But in general... If he's not making shots, he's such a liability on defense, he kills you. He has to be involved in the offense. And not necessarily hitting all the threes, but making sure that his defender's close to him, which gives more space to LeBron and gives more space to the other guys to drive. There has to be, he has to be involved in the offense or else he can't be on the floor because his defense is so bad. And then you say, okay, Kyle Korver's been in the league for, what, 10, 15 years. LeBron's been in the league for 13, 15 years, whatever. Do these guys have a switch? And maybe they do, and I hope they do, because it's been seven years since we didn't see LeBron in the finals, and I'll tell you right now, if it's Houston or Golden State versus anybody except LeBron, I'm not going to be locked in, because I don't think any of those teams have a chance. I don't really don't think LeBron has a chance, but I just love watching him play, and I love the way he just puts his entire franchise on his back and just drags them across the finish line as best as he can. And I just don't see anyone else that could even pose a threat to Houston Golden State. And I think that with Kyrie, Boston had a chance because Brad Stevens is such a good coach. They could they knew how to play against Golden State and they always are known for beating Golden State once a year, sometimes twice a year. But without him, I just don't think they have the weapons to keep up with him. Anyway, back to LeBron. I could see them losing game one. I could even see them losing I don't think I could see them losing both games because I think either game will be a wake-up call, but I, I could see them losing one or two and then coming back again tied 2-2. Like I, th- I think this is going to be a long series just because their defense is so bad, and I know that Indiana plays hard, and Indiana has nothing to lose. You know, there, no, one is supposed, no one believes that they can win. So I think they're going to go out there and play their butts off, and I think they're going to win some games in this series because just because of hard work, just because they're going to play hard, play the right way, share the ball, play with joy, and LeBron and his crew are is playing with pressure, for sure. If they go out in the first round as a, as a four seed, they're getting that team blown up, probably. And while we're on LeBron, LeBron, look, he's, he's, he's unbelievable. He played the most minutes this year. He played every single game, first time in his career, and it scares the crap out of me. And here's the problem. Tyron Lue had no head coaching experience. 
LeBron has never played for a coach who's a great coach. And we'll get into it this summer, but I don't think LeBron goes to Lakers. And I don't think LeBron stays with Cleveland. And I don't know where LeBron's going to go. But you have a coach like Tyron Lue. Now let's think about this. Tyron Lue wins a championship. And immediately the next year, there's questions about his coaching. And now this year, there's questions about his coaching. Is he, is he the right coach? Is he a good enough coach? Well, when you have someone like Pop, who has coaching stability and not fear of getting fired, he can sit his players. He can rest Ginobili. He can rest Parker. He can rest Tim Duncan like he did for all those years. So those guys can play into their 40s because they're not playing a million minutes. And they're less susceptible to getting injured because they don't play so many minutes. And even games. They just take games off because he wants them for the long term, not for today. Now you have someone like Tyron Lue who has no job security, who there's rumors of him getting fired. So he's going out there trying to win every single game. And when you win, try to win every single game, you're going to play your players, your best players, more minutes because you're trying to win this game. And it's so counterintuitive because, number one, the playoffs are the most important. If LeBron walked in as the seven seed, I don't think we would say that they're, they're not going to have a chance. We would say maybe they have a less chance, but it's still LeBron. And he, if he was more rested, I think they'd have a, a better chance. But you have Tyron Lue, who's an inexperienced coach, who doesn't have job security, who wants to win every game to keep his job. And so he's going to play LeBron the maximum amount of minutes he can. And now you have the best player in the league leading the league in minutes in his mid-30s. And that is just not the way it's going to be done. And everyone talks about LeBron being a robot, a cyborg, and inhuman, and all this. And I know he works on his body. We all heard the story that he spends $1.5 million taking care of his body. But at some point, it's going to break down. It's just, it's, just, it's just the way it is. And it may not be this year, and it may not be next year, and I hope it never happens. But playing these minutes, there's a reason why people don't play these, this amount of minutes for this amount of time, because their bodies break down. And even the greatest, you know, even, even saying he's the greatest as far as his body and, and, and being in shape and taking care of himself, one turn, one twist, one step, and it's all over. And then who knows if he'll ever be the same again. And in a season where clearly they weren't going to be the number one seed and the two seed was not close, not as not as not close enough that it was worth going for, why not rest LeBron? So what happens? So they're the five seed, so they gotta win one game in Indiana. Who cares? So they're the sixth seed, so they gotta win one game in Philly. So the seventh seed, so they gotta win one game in Boston. It's not a big deal. Having LeBron rested for the playoffs is a way bigger deal. And I know the playoffs are spaced out, but let's look at Steph Curry when he comes back. He's gonna be so rested. Durant missed some time. Clay missed some time. These guys are going to be rested and ready. Whereas LeBron gets two days off or three days off and then and plays and plays and plays. And he's going to play even more minutes in the playoffs. And I just think it's the wrong way. And, and, it's, and it stinks that they have a coach that isn't secure enough to sit him. And it's not Tyron Lue's fault because he doesn't want to get fired. And there was a point this season when they were on this tailspin where there was questions about would Tyron Lue still be around? And I didn't know the answer. And I don't even think LeBron knew because I, I think Le LeBron was non-committal on his answers. So 
Tyron Lue was fighting for his job too. You know, you fail with LeBron James, it's going to be hard to get the next job. And maybe because he has a ring, he'll get another chance. And I'm sure Doc would hire him as an assistant again or something like that. But it's hard to fail with LeBron and then have other people come knocking down your door because they want you, you know? So Tyron Lue is definitely under pressure. And if this playoff season doesn't go well, I don't think he'll be back next year. And I don't think LeBron will be back either. So there is so much on the line for Tyron Lue on a daily basis. And it makes it really tough. And that's why LeBron played so many minutes. Anyway, I think Cleveland will win the series. Um, And so I I have the top four all winning um, in the first round. And I know that's boring, but that's just the way I feel. And, and, you know, they've earned these spots because they've played better and they've won more games against pretty much the same teams. So they're there for a reason. And in a long series like this, I think the home team um, in the East will win all four. So moving out West, uh, we'll start with the one seed, the Houston Rockets, um, taking on... Um, the Minnesota Timberwolves. And this is really interesting um, because, again, people are talking about, well, before Jimmy Butler was hurt, Minnesota was the three seed or Minnesota was the four seed. They were way above 500. They're a really good team. They're a top four team in the in the West. And the only reason they dropped is because of all the injuries. Well, most significantly, the injury to Jimmy Butler and that this could be a tough series. And I agree. It'll probably be a tough series. But I just think Houston's much better than them. And I actually watched these two teams play several times. And it's really interesting because I'm a defensive coach and I love defense. And so is Tibbs. And I think Tibbs is a great coach. And I think he's a top five, top eight coach in the NBA. The problem is, is that Houston's offense is so efficient that it kind of overpowers how good Minnesota's defense is. And I watched them play, and Minnesota just couldn't keep up. And the part of that is that Houston's playing better defense as well. And Tibbs is not a prolific offensive mind. He's a defensive genius. And so maybe he doesn't maximize Minnesota's offensive abilities. But I think they do well. I just don't know if they if he maximizes them. And when you're playing a team like Houston, you can play really good defense, but with so many possessions in a game, you have to be able to score with them because you're never going to be able to hold them to a game in the 70s or the 80s. I just I would be shocked if any of Houston's games, if any of Houston's final scores, this playoffs are under 90. And I'll, I'll, you know, we can all monitor that, and I can monitor that and see. And maybe they'll score 89 the first day or whatever, and I'll be an idiot. But I just think that you have to be able to score points. And I hate that basketball is like that because I love defense. I love digging in and, and getting low and being physical. But, you know, with Houston, they're changing the metrics, you know, because they shoot the three ball so well, and they know how to keep the floor spread. And then they have Capella around the hoop and Nene around the hoop who can who can finish. And, you know, make life really difficult on a, on a defense. So I like Houston there. Uh, and I, I don't think it's going to be super close. Uh, I think five would be a, a number I would pick, you know, where Minnesota, you know, either wins game three or game four. And then, 
and then Houston comes home and closes it out. Going with the two seed, Golden State versus San Antonio. Um, this series could be interesting because Pop is able to do so much with so little, and and it's it's always the question: chicken or the egg? You know, did did those great players make Pop look like a great coach, or was Pop a, such a great coach that he made those players into Hall of Famers? And it's probably some somewhere in the middle, but there are four or five guys on San Antonio that you cannot name that are playing significant minutes and playing really well. And they're a veteran team and they're a team that just kind of hangs around and they make shots. They don't score a ton of points all the time, but they just make shots and they make a shot here and then they make a shot there. And then they tip an offensive rebound there and they just, they're always there. And, and then they execute really well, and so they get these extra buckets from execution, and they got these veteran guys that just know how to play and are professional or professional scorers. You know, Tony Parker is not half as fast as the point guards in the league, but he can come off a, a ball screen, and he knows if the guy does one thing, goes under it, he's pulling up behind it for fifteen, which he can make. And if the guy trails, he's he's dribbling in for that little floater that he's been that he's been known for forever. And if a defender rises up too early, he'll take that extra dribble and get the ball up to the rim off the backboard before the guy can block it. So these guys just know how to play the right way, and they're always in it. And it's disappointing that we won't see Steph, and it's disappointing that we won't see Kawhi, because this series last year was supposed to be the series. And of course, we know what happened. Kawhi goes down. Pop blames Golden State for cheating, and what's his name for cheating? And we never get the series that we wanted. And now San Antonio is a different team. They're a completely different team. They have guys who weren't playing at all, who are playing significant minutes. And at the end of the day, I just don't see a situation where San Antonio can stay with them and, and beat them. I just think Golden State's too talented. And now when we talk about Golden State, everyone wants to know if they're going to win, if they're going to make it to the finals, beat Houston, and, and win their third ring and their second in a row. And it's such a tough thing to answer right now because of Steph's status. And watching Golden State play the last few weeks since Steph got hurt, I've come to some conclusions that I don't like. First of all, I used to like Steph, and now I don't like Steph. He's arrogant. He just dances after every three. I mean, it's just a... I mean, that whole team is so proud of themselves, except for Clay, who has no personality, every time they make a shot. I mean, it's crazy. Because, look, I'm 38 years old. Imagine if, if everybody celebrated on every three like they do now. I mean, Reggie Miller, Ray Allen... Uh, Kyle Korver. I mean, this is this is your job. Make a three, go back and play defense. Yeah, if it's a big three, if it's momentum, sure, everyone has emotions. But there is just a celebration, some kind of thing to show how great they are after every single three. And Steph is with the worst. It's flexing. It's pulling his mouthpiece out. It's kicking his legs out. It's it's some kind of dance, some kind of arms out. It's just something to show how great he is. And it's. It's just old. It's your job. You know, I love that LeBron only celebrates when it's a game winner. LeBron has a celebration, and you might only see it once a year. You might not see it at all, but it's because he hit a game winner, and that's cool to me. 
Um, anyway, getting back to Steph and getting back to Golden State, it's very interesting because the day that Kevin Durant put on a Golden State uniform, he was the best player on that team. And it's funny because there was a debate going on who was the best player, LeBron or Steph, LeBron or Steph, LeBron or Steph. Then KD shows up, and Steph's not even the best player on his own team. And it's clear. Now, having said that, what I don't like but I have to admit is Steph is the most important player on Golden State. And I've realized this watching Golden State play since he's been hurt. They have so much less flow. So many guys on that team, and even guys like Harrison Barnes who are gone, needed Steph to get them shots. And with him gone, that makes other guys have to create their own shots, which they're just not as good at. And it makes the the Warriors more one-dimensional. I mean, there's been games where Durant gets hot, and when Durant gets hot, he gets as hot as anybody in the league. And I think the game I'm watching, I'm talking about, might have been against San Antonio, and it and it was a game where Durant scored 50 or over 50. And every possession, he just walked the ball up down the floor and then just shot it. And they all went in. But there was no flow, there was nothing. And down the stretch, you see that now from them, where it's just Durant going one-on-one, the way he didn't want to do when he came to Golden State. That's why he left Westbrook, because he hated all the one-on-one ball. And him just trying to score and just trying to get buckets or create for somebody else one pass shot or shot by him. And it's not the way you win in the NBA. And it'll be interesting to see this first-round series because if they play like that, San Antonio might beat them because San Antonio Pop will come up with a game plan to neutralize that and... And again, like I said, it's not winning basketball. And if they don't play their free-flowing, fast-paced game, San Antonio could be dangerous. Again, having said that, I'm picking Golden. I'm picking Golden State to win that to win that round. Um, the three seed is Portland, and the six seed is New Orleans. And you, you know, first of all, major respect to New Orleans. Uh, and them not only making the playoffs, but you know, being right there in the hunt with those upper seeds for the for the whole second half of the season. And again, New Orleans isn't on TV a whole lot. So I didn't get to see them. It's very interesting because they get cousins in a trade. And then cousins, of course, goes down, and you just think they're done. And they got better. And I don't I don't want to infer, and I don't think it has anything to do with Cousins going down, because I think they would be better with Cousins. But what I do think is maybe some of the guys they traded away, that now came to fruition a little longer than expected. So what does that mean? So they got rid of a couple guys. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, but I felt like when one of the guys they got rid of, I was like, that might be better for them. And they got rid of some guys... And then Cousins goes down, and now these new guys have to step up, and these guys maybe are playing harder, maybe are playing to prove themselves, maybe have a chip on their shoulder because they weren't getting minutes, and they're playing the right way, and that combined with Anthony Davis and just how dominant he is in so many facets of the game has made them a really good team. So whatever happens in the playoffs, 
I think it's been a very successful season for the Pelicans. Nobody predicted them to make the playoffs. Nobody predicted them to be this high up. And when Cousins goes down, you think the season's over. And they got and they did better. And so it's really impressive. And uh, I think it's awesome what they did this year. Portland um, is a fun team to watch. I love McCollum. I just think he's so pure. He knows how to score. Like he's a professional scorer. Lillard, I like. Um, it would be crazy to see. I mean, we've seen it when Lillard's been hurt. How McCollum just goes nuts. I mean, it would be interesting to see McCollum on another team. They probably wouldn't be as good because it would probably be a Devin Booker situation where it's just one guy just trying to carry a team on his back all season long. And and so I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't even know if McCollum would even want that to be on his own team and be the 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 lead dog. Um, but they have a good team and they have one of the best home courts in the league. Uh, I think they win that series pretty easily. As impressed as I've been with New Orleans, they are inconsistent. And, you know, you could, you just, you remember those lulls in their games where they wouldn't score for minutes at a time. And, and I don't know. I just think that Portland's better. Portland's got a really good home court. I, I don't see Portland losing at home. So even if it went seven, I think Portland would win that. Um, so I think that series is not going to be full of a lot of drama. Um, and then we get the four five and the four five is one that I don't have a strong opinion on. Um, OKC and Utah. I think the home court advantage is a big deal. I know that OKC is really good at home. I know that Utah defends as good as anyone in the league. So, what we might see is what's crazy is that you have these explosive players. You have Donovan Mitchell, you have Russell Westbrook, you have Rudy Gobert, you have Paul George, and these teams are the two of the best defensive teams in the league. So it'll be interesting to see if we just have these slugfests that end up in the low 80s, high 80s, maybe low 90s, because these teams are both really good defenders, um, really good defending teams and team defense. So I'm, I guess I got to choose... OKC because of their star power. I want to see OKC win because I think that's a much more fun matchup against Houston. They did it last year and it wasn't that close, but I think their defense is better this year and maybe they could give Houston a little bit of a problem. But they have problems on the offensive end, for sure, OKC does. And so does Utah. Utah hits these lulls where they can't score. But everyone says, well, three Hall of Famers, why aren't they better? And there's several reasons for that. Number one, Carmelo Anthony is old. Carmelo Anthony is not a Hall of Fame player right now. Carmelo Anthony has had a Hall of Fame career. He used to be one of the best players in the NBA, but now he's just another guy. And so they don't have three Hall of Fame players. It's just like saying that Miami has a Hall of Fame player. Well, they do, but Dwayne Wade's really old and he's not really effective anymore. So saying that is kind of a is kind of misleading. Now, Paul George is really good, and 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 I love Westbrook. I mean, I just absolutely just adore how hard he plays. I mean, I just love watching him play. He's so ferocious, and everybody knows this. So the other reason why they're not that good, in my opinion, is that they have too many guys that need the ball. And I hate that term because everybody said it when Chris Paul went to Houston, and it's completely different. 
in one scenario, you have Houston with James Harden and Chris Paul. And you say, well, there's not enough basketballs for them. But that's not how that works. These guys are creators. Yes, they take shots, but they are creators and they get their other teammates involved. And the ball is moving around. Yes, James Harden sometimes dominates the dribble. But in general, the ball is moving and everyone's getting touches and touches and touches and shots and shots and they play really fast. You look at OKC and when there's not enough and when people say there's not enough basketballs, it's because you have one-on-one players. And guys that aren't trying to create for other players are trying to create for themselves. So Westbrook comes down and attacks the basket and scores. Then somebody else gets a shot. Then Westbrook pulls up for a jumper. Then Chris Paul, uh, uh, Paul George pulls up for, you know what I mean? So you don't have guys getting touches. You don't have ball movement. If they give the ball to Carmelo, that possession is Carmelo trying to get a bucket. So he might square a guy up, jab step at him a couple times, take a couple dribbles and shoot. Or maybe pass it. But again, you're not having man movement. You're not having ball movement. You're going to have guys who don't touch the ball or don't take a shot for minutes at a time. And then all of a sudden the ball's thrust in their hands and they're open. they got to make a shot. Well, they're not in a flow. They're not in a rhythm. They, they're not used to touching the ball. I mean, if we all know as players that when we have the ball in our hands and, or we're bringing the ball up and we have the ball in our hands and we're the, the, the lead dog, we're making shots because we're in a flow and we, we, you feel the ball in your hands and you have your range is down because you've been, you've been looking at the basket and, you, and you've been shooting. And, and then you're on a team with you know, some ball-dominant point guards and your job is to stand in the corner. It's hard because you haven't touched the ball in a long time and then all of a sudden they expect you to make it. And I was thinking about this and it, it, I relate it to when, when uh, Ron Artest went to the Lakers. Ron Artest had been a dominant offensive player everywhere he had been, including Houston, and then he came to the Lakers to be a role player for Kobe. And he stood in the corner. And a role player for Powell, I guess. And, and he stood in the corner. And he didn't make shots. And everyone says, well, I don't understand what happened to... Why is Ron Artest not good anymore? It's because the other places he was the number one option. He had the ball in his hands all the time. He was making plays. He was creating for his teammates. He was scoring. And now he's standing in the corner. And if Kobe comes down and shoots, and then Powell comes down and shoots, then Kobe comes down and shoots, and then the next position they hit... They hit uh, our test in the corner, and he hasn't touched the ball in two minutes because there's been free throws and whatever, and he's supposed to make a shot, and it's really hard to do. And I think that's kind of what, where some of the offensive struggles come for OKC is that when you have these ball-dominant guys, it's a different ball dominance because it's not a creating ball dominance. It's a creating for themselves, and it's more like three individual players that are, that are really, really good offensive players for themselves. And Westbrook is a good offensive player for his teammates, but the other two guys are really just kind of creating for themselves. And you just get into that standing around, you know, one pass shot or or shot with no passes, and it can be detrimental to a flow and getting other guys involved. So, again, I'm least confident about that series, but again, I will be boring and take the top four seeds in the West. Um... I think that's it for basketball news. Um, we can talk about the next rounds in a couple weeks when the next round get here. So we can go ahead and get into the analytics portion of the podcast. And today, analytically, we're going to talk about the four factors. And the four factors are really valuable because they are a more advanced way to look at a box score. 
And if you're just looking at a box score, then you're missing out on a ton of information. And the four factors are a really good way, though still kind of basic, a good way to do more with a box score. And um, because box scores, you know, they always people say, well, stats don't lie. Well, stats definitely lie. Because when you look at stats, if you're not looking at a long well, see, the thing is, if you're looking at a full season full of stats, well, that's different than a one game against a certain team. And if you're looking at one game against a certain team, that's completely different than a, than a full season worth of stats. So stats definitely lie. So, and I'll give you some examples as we go through this. But the first of the four factors is uh, effective field goal percentage. And, and basically, what I'm going to do is just kind of break this stuff down. And, you know, you can go online and look at a lot of analytics stuff, and I've done that. And a lot of them deal with these complex math equations with symbols I've never seen before. And I'm a math guy, and I have no clue. And I don't, it's, it's like almost like overwhelming to try to like decipher what these equations are. And it's, and it's funny because the people who put this out there, it's like, who are you putting this out there for? Because I'm a coach and a math guy, and I don't get it. And how, even if I did get it, how would I show that to my players? Because at the end of the day, we get all of this data, all of this information, and we can't share all of it with the players because it's just too much. So we have to decide what to show them and what to give them, and we have to just give them little splices, little pieces that they can digest. And obviously, better teams, you can give more, and more, you know, higher IQ teams, you can give more, and that's the goal, but you still can't give them everything. And so some of the stuff you look online, and it's really, really hard to decipher, and, and sometimes I just think man, I wish someone just broke it down and, and talked about it in a way that we can all kind of understand. So that's what I'm going to kind of do here. So effective field goal percentage, and hopefully this is going to be the most basic one. Hopefully you've, you've heard of this before. It basically means equaling out three-pointers with two-pointers. So let's say that I was five for 10 from the field and they were all twos, and you were three for 10 from the field and they were all threes. It says, the box score says you shot 30% and I shot 50%. And so that means I shot better than you. So it's almost like per 100 possessions. That's kind of what effective field goal percentage is. It's just a different way to do it. So even though I shot 30%, I got us 9 points. And you got us 10 points. So what effective field goal percentage does is it equals out the weight for 3-pointers. And all you have to do is just times each of the 3-pointer makes times 1.5. Because you're getting 3 points instead of 2. So it's really simple math. Instead of two, you get one and a half of two, which is three. So if someone, so let's, let me give you a different example, a four for 10, okay? So I shoot five for 10 and they're all twos and that's 50% and you shoot four for 10 and they're all threes and that's 40%. Well, based on that, you sh I shot better than you, but I didn't because when you do the effective field goal percentage, you get uh, one and a half for every one of your threes. So you're, you're getting 12 points to my 10. So already you're scoring more points out of those 10 shots than I am. And so your, your effective field goal percentage is 60 because you're getting one and a half for each of those makes. So you get one and a half times four is six, and that's 60%. So that's how effective field goal percentage works. It just basically lets you, you know, if you see a team like the Rockets who are going to shoot a lower percentage because they're shooting so many threes, and you say, well, we're shooting 55% and the Rockets shoot 44%, so that's we have an advantage there. 
Well, maybe not, because maybe the Rockets made 25 three-pointers, and now their effective field goal percentage is 62%, and yours is 55, and, and so you don't have that edge. So not only with your team on all of these factors, but with opponents, you need to use this stuff, or you can use this stuff, to see where you have advantages and competitive advantages over your opponents. So that's effective field goal percentage. It's also easy to just say per 100. So let's say, you know, I was 5 for 10. We'll just tease it out to to 100. So I made 50 out of 100. So that's 50 points, 50%. Well, he made four threes out of 10. So that's 40 out of 100. Well, that's 120 points. So you can see 120 points versus 100 points per 100 possessions. And that's kind of how that works um, in this day and age. The next one is turnovers. And that is the turnover percentage. And again, you have to put into take into account when you look at a box score, the pace of play, the opponents, all of these things. So let's say that my team averages 13 turnovers a game and the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors average 15 turnovers a game. Well, does that mean my team takes care of the ball better? No. Let's say that my team only has 50 possessions a game and the Warriors have 100 possessions a game. So what you do is you take your turnovers and divide that by your total total possessions in the game, and that'll give you your turnover percentage. And that turnover percentage will let you know on what percent of possessions you're turning the ball over. And then you can find out on what what uh, percentage of possessions um, your opponent is too. So if I'm playing an opponent this week in a, in a game and we average 12 turnovers and they average 13 turnovers, that doesn't mean that we turn the ball over less than them. It means that we that or it means we turn over the ball less than them, but maybe a greater percentage of the time. You have to see how many possessions there are, how pace of play, all that stuff, and that's kind of what turnover percentage does. A lot of these things, instead of looking at a one game sample, what they do with these percentages is show you over a larger scale um, what these numbers mean. The next one is rebounding, and it's rebounding percentage. And so what you're doing is you're finding out what your offensive and defensive re- rebounding percentage is. Again. You can say, well, we had we had 10 offensive rebounds and 20 defensive rebounds. And the other team had 8 offensive rebounds and 30 defensive rebounds. Well, you say, well, we may have had more offensive rebounds. We're, we're a better offensive rebound team. But again, it's the percentage of the shots available. Let's say the team we were playing against made every shot, right? So they had 8 offensive rebounds but they shot 65% from the field. Well, they might have only missed 25 shots or 20 shots the whole game. If they got eight of those offensive rebounds, that's a much higher percentage than if we got 10 of our 40 misses because it has to do with how many shots you missed. So that's kind of how uh, rebound percentage works. Instead of looking at a box score at how many rebounds you get, how many rebounds your opponent gets, look at the percentage of rebounds they get because that's a more apt way to see um, who's getting the most rebounds, because teams miss less. Again, teams shoot more, teams shoot less, there's less opportunities, more opportunities. All that stuff has to factor in. So just looking at a box score, again, is not the right way to think about it. And then the last one is your free throw um, percentage. It's how many, what percentage of the time you get to the free throw line, and what percentage of the time you make those free throws. And again, you know, it's the same thing for all four of these factors. If you're playing a super slow pace of play, and you get to the free throw line 10 times, well, that's better than playing a super fast pace and only get to the free throw line 12 times. So it's the percentage of the possessions of the game 
because that's a more accurate reading of how often you got to the free throw line, right? There's a number and then there's a percentage of the total. And the percentage of the total is more accurate because every game is going to have a different amount of possessions and every team that you're playing against is going to have a different amount of possessions and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how the four factors worked. And what you can do with this is look at your opponent's individual box scores, season box scores, and start calculating this information and see where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. And that will help you put together a game plan to, to help you beat them. So let's pretend that a team didn't average very many offensive rebounds per game. But let's pretend they were a very, and you said, and at first you thought, oh good, they're not a great offensive rebounding team. They only average six a game. But then when you break down the numbers and they're a very slow paced team, now those six offensive rebounds per game are a much higher percentage because there's less possessions in that game. So now you go, wait a minute. They shoot a high percentage. They play at a slow pace. So even though they only average six six re- offensive rebounds a game, they're a really good offensive rebounding team in general because there's less opportunities for offensive rebounds. So don't immediately dismiss a box score or dismiss a stat sheet because based on you know worldviews, some things seem like they're not where they should be because of pace of play, possessions, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how what you can do. You can look at how often they turn the ball over, how well they rebound the ball. And if, if one of those is higher than, you know, other teams you play or than you, than you, then that now you've figured out where you can, where you can look to game plan and get your team prepared in that area. Um, instead of just saying, well, they average six offensive rebounds a game. That's not that many, but make sure you box it. Wait a minute. These guys average, you know, 25% offensive rebounds. Every fourth miss, they're getting the offensive rebound. So we got to make sure we do a great job of boxing them out. That's much more detail. And I, and I said last week when we started this, or a couple weeks ago, that we see things, but analytics gives us numbers to be more accurate with those things. And that's the most important, important thing and, the, and, the, and what's useful about analytics. They give us actual numbers to put to what we see with our eyes. And, and, and that's, that's what's cool about analytics. So we'll go to the strategy session. Um, and uh, the strategy this week, we're going to talk about post play. And I'm not going to get into post moves this time. We'll get into that another time. Um, I just kind of want to talk about the chess match. And I've been a post coach since I started coaching. I played post in college. When I played overseas, for the most part, I was playing in the post. Um, I like to be a well-rounded coach, but, you know, my specialty is probably post moves. I deal with, you know, footwork and all that stuff. And and I take pride in, you know, I had a player who was MVP of the league. I had a player, you know, I've had multiple players who've been first team all conference. And I take pride in that stuff that they're, you know, playing the right way. And really, we, we teach some basic moves. And like I said, I'll get into them another time. But there's two things that I think are really effective. And when you get to the college level, and one of the reasons I like the college level is because it's a chess match and because players are thinking and hopefully adjusting on the fly. And I talk to my players about that all the time, about evolving possession by possession, game by game, and getting better and learning from, you know, even if you're not a starter, learning from the first five minutes of the game while you're watching, learning from how defenses play you, all these things, every single thing you're doing is going into your bank and helping you become a little better for the next next situation. So with post play, the first and most important thing when you're teaching a post player is they got to be able to get to the middle of the, of the paint. And 
if they can get to the middle of the paint, it opens up the entire world because they can score from the middle of the paint. It gives them it gives them room to turn and score back where they came from. There's passing angles. Guys are going to suck in and help. I mean, it is. I mean, think about it. If you're a point guard, if you're breaking a press, you always want to. If you're beating a zone, you always want to get the ball to the middle. Get the ball to the high post. Get the ball to the middle. Break the press. Get the ball to the middle. It's no different when you're on the post. If you can get to the middle and you can establish the middle, it opens everything up. I like a jump hook as my go-to move, and my guys work on this all the time. And the jump hook will open everything up. It opens up ball faking. It opens up spinning back. It opens up turning away. It opens everything if you can establish that middle and, in my opinion, establish that middle jump hook. Um, And so that's what I teach. And even if it's a jump stop to get to the middle, you know that help defenders are going to take that extra step in because they see you there. Uh, you can see the floor. You can see just about everybody from the middle of the paint. And, you know, if you decide to pass it, you're in a great rebounding position too. The second part about getting to the middle and post play, the thing that I like to teach is playing in the chess match. And what does that mean? It means what I just said a minute ago. Every time that you make a move, you're not only learning from your defender, but you're teaching him what you do. And he is hopefully going to over-adjust to that because he's a college kid and he's excitable maybe and, and whatnot. So I'm, I'll tell you right now, there's nothing I like more than, well, I don't like it more, but I don't mind when one of my post players gets blocked the first time or the second time that he makes a move because that defender is going to be jumping for the rest of the half. And when he's jumping, we've got up and unders. We're getting to the foul line. I mean, he's dead because he got that one block, and now he wants to get another block because the crowd got fired up. He got fired up. His teammates were all high-fiving him. And now guess what? We throw him an up fake, and he jumps. And now we got a bucket or we got a foul. And now we've started the chess match. And now we've taken into the middle – and we jump hooked him and he didn't jump and we jump hooked him. And now the next possession, we get do that, start that same move to the middle. What's he going to do? He's going to adjust and he's going to try to take away that middle jump hook because he just got scored on. So now what? Now we have that little bit of edge that we can spin the other way or turn over our other shoulder and knock down that shot. And now what's he going to do? Okay. We scored to the middle. Let's, let's start over. We got, we got to the middle for our jump hook and we jump hooked and he blocked it. No problem. Next possession, we go to that same move. We ball fake him. He jumps up in the air. We step through. We lay the ball in. Now what? All right. Next possession. Now he learned. So now we get to the middle. We up fake. He doesn't jump. We step through again, just like we did before. We up fake again. He jumps because that's what we just scored on him. And now we step back the other way. And now we've got another bucket. And now this guy doesn't know what to do because we're playing a chess match with him. And he's losing because he's a step behind. He's playing the last move, and we're playing the next move. And that's how you want to teach your post players. Another part of that chess match is feeling your defender. Because they, if they get a half step out of position, you can score on them. And that's why getting to the middle is so great. Because 
they have to, if you get to the middle, they have to try to take that away or you'll just lay the ball in or jump hook it from two feet. So now that little overreaction, now you can spin back. And the next time that you've spun back, maybe he doesn't take away that middle as well as he should. And now you can go a quick move to the middle and score. So you have to teach your guys to feel that defender and feel when he's just the hair out of possession, out of position. And it's funny because, you know, we'll do post work and we'll do one-on-one drills where you play one-on-one for two minutes. And I'll, I'll be walking around from court to court and I'll say, you got him right there. You got him. And they don't, they don't see it. They don't feel it. And it's, and it's a thing where it's experience. And I'll, I'll just say, you had him in the middle all you had to do was lay the ball in. Or he overplayed you so much in the middle, you could have spun back and he couldn't have stopped it. And so that's kind of the way I look at it and the chess match that I want my guys to start thinking about when they're in game. And, and I'll have these conversations with them, you know, especially when I was an assistant coach and I could spend more time with the players during the game. I would go over to them and I would say, all right, let's have a chat about the chess match you're playing with your defender. And he would, I would say, what did you, what did he do? How did he guard you? What did you learn? And at first I'm going to give them a lot of instruction and see, tell them what I saw. But hopefully as the season goes on and the years go on, they can kind of see it and make those reads for themselves and say, you know what? He kind of backed off this one side because he was worried about my other side. I think when I get in there the next time, I think I'll be able to get that. And now you've got something because you've got a guy who's thinking and he, he, he's reading the defense and knowing and, and being able to see at a high level what's going to be the next move and what's going to be the second move after that. I mean, because we could talk about that too. We could say, you know what? The next move, you're going to jump hook him quick. And then the following move after that, he's going to bite so hard that you're going to go up and under and you're going to score. And, and if you do this right, you got two buckets. And the guy will go, okay. And, and then if, if something happens to change that, maybe they double team or something, that's fine. But we're, we're reading the defense. We're thinking in terms of chess. We're thinking moves ahead. We're not thinking right now. And we're going to hope that we're thinking at a higher level than our defender. And that's going to that's gonna get us buckets. That's going to get us to the free throw line. That's going to get them in foul trouble. So, again, get to the middle. Get your guys to get to the middle. Especially, you know, I don't care if they're, let's say they're a righty and their right hand is the baseline side it's even more important they get to the middle because they're going to be turning back so much of the time. So that's it for episode two of The Help Side. I hope there was something in the podcast that was beneficial to you as a coach. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.